0: Welcome to series two of the Saltwater Strategists, the podcast that delves into the complex world of maritime security in the Indo-Pacific region. I'm your host, Jen Parker. As the world becomes increasingly dependent on maritime trade, it's critical that we understand the challenges and opportunities in this competitive environment. Our well-respected guests, strategists, academics, international relations and maritime professionals from across the region provide insightful and considered discussion on the most pressing maritime issues in the Indo-Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist is a product of the Australian Naval Institute, a non-profit self-supporting organisation that encourages the promotion and advancement of knowledge related to the maritime profession. This episode of the Saltwater Strategist is also proudly brought to you by Lursen Australia. In this special series of the Saltwater Strategist, we are bringing you three lectures from the recent Goldrick seminar held in Canberra on the 19th of October, an annual Australian Naval Institute seminar in honour of the late Rear Admiral James Goldrick, one of the most prominent maritime strategists and maritime historians Australia has produced. In episode one of this special series, we will hear from Associate Professor Michelle Boyer from the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resources and Security. Her research focuses on the human dimensions of maritime conservation and resource management and the nexus of social science and policy. In today's episode, entitled Sea Power and the Blue Economy, Michelle outlines the growing importance of the blue economy to Australia's development. The slides from Michelle's presentation at the Goldrick Seminar are available on the Australian Naval Institute website.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me here today. Um, And thank you very much for Vice Admiral Peter Jones and the Australian Naval Institute for inviting me. I'm really acutely aware of the significance of this event as the first Goldrick um, seminar since the passing of Rear Admiral James Goldrick. So um, it's a real honour to be here today. So yes, my name's Michelle Boyer. I'm an Associate Professor with the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resources and Security based at the University of Wollongong. And many of the people here today would be very familiar with the work of ANCORS, which started out originally as the Centre for Maritime Policy in 1994 um, through a collaboration of the University of Wollongong and the Australian Navy. But since 1994, ANCORS has diversified. It's growing. It feels like we're getting new members of the team every week. It's um, really diversified into an interdisciplinary centre that looks at a range of different maritime issues from the law of the sea to fisheries management to the blue economy um, with a range of different disciplinary areas that are much more civilian than um, where ANCOR started out and I'm very much in that civilian category Um, so please forgive me if I stumble over any language Um, but yes what um, Peter Jones asked me to do today is give a bit of a broad overview of some of the work I've been doing over the last seven or eight years into this emerging and now quite well recognised concept of a blue economy. So what I want to do over the next 20 minutes or so is I'm going to start very broad and start thinking at that global scale of what this concept of a blue economy is and some of the thoughts that I have around the intersections with sea power And then I wanted to really um, scale down and think about the Australian context and particularly some of the emerging sectors that are starting to really make their presence known in the blue economy uh, in Australia. And have a think about what some of the CPR and maritime security considerations might be for those emerging sectors and their intersections with existing sectors. So the context of all this is the rapid growth of maritime uses that we've seen over the last 50 years. It's sometimes called the blue acceleration and it's really transformed our relationships with the world's oceans. There's been explosive growth in maritime activities driven by advances in technology, changing environmental conditions and increasing global demand for resources. And this encompasses a range of different sectors from established sectors like shipping and fisheries to the emergence of new sectors like renewable energy, uh, offshore wind and tidal, for example. So with this expansion comes both risks and opportunities. So we in particular see growing environmental risks as our oceans, much more use of our oceans occurs, but also risks of conflict between sectors and also between countries. And the blue economy is a concept that has emerged within this context as both a reaction to it and the symptom of it. So it it has emerged as a way to harness and support this expansion of maritime uses, but it's also in response to growing concerns around some of those particularly environmental risks associated with this growth. So what is it? Back in 2017, the Sea Power Centre actually commissioned me to do some research to to try and answer this question and it it was a question that I'd been grappling with for some time and still do to this day in lots of ways. What I came up with through my analysis was that essentially this concept means different things to different people and it's being mobilised in a variety of different ways and in particular identified at that time four main discourses that um, were quite common in the way that the blue economy was spoken about. So firstly, it was a concept that particularly environmental NGOs, for example, were used to prioritise nature conservation and sustainable economic uses of the ocean, such as ecotourism, for example, or concepts such as payment for ecosystem services, so paying money to protect environmental assets. Secondly, the concept uh, was used to prioritise sustainable livelihoods and development, and this discourse was largely common amongst small island developing states and small-scale fishers that wanted to protect their ways of life. Thirdly, and I would argue the dominant discourse is uh, the blue economy as a tool to promote economic growth and industrialisation of ocean spaces. And finally, there was a discourse around the oceans as being a frontier for innovation and technological development and exploration. So while things have moved on quite a lot since 2017, we can still see these discourses quite commonly in the way that the blue economy is discussed and enacted today. It has absolutely exploded in prominence. It's got huge political capital over the last few years, and as I said, we've seen that it's used and understood differently in different contexts, but commonly it usually refers to environmentally friendly and socially responsible economic development of ocean spaces, and encompasses a range of different sectors. It's supported by a surge of public and private sector initiatives aimed at fostering economic development at national, regional, and international scales. So, what I wanted to do um, when thinking about this question that I was asked uh, in regard to the sea power implications of the blue economy, three main things sprang to mind, and that's what I wanted to spend the next few minutes having a talk about. So, that was the blue economy as a strategic geopolitical tool, the blue economy as a development tool, and the blue economy as a diplomatic tool to empower and strengthen strategic alliances. So the first one, this this idea of sea power as a geopolitical concept, Um, we have seen over the last few years this concept deployed by lots of different nations in order to advance their national interest, particularly in contested regions such as the South China Sea or in strategically important regions like the Pacific. And this is evident in a range of different ways, including through bilateral agreement, aid programs and national level design and implementation of strategies. So I just thought I'd draw your attention to one particular example of this. This is a bit of a slide that I've put together that pulls together some of the commitments made in Vietnam as associated with their resolution on the sustainable development of Vietnam's ocean economy. And you don't necessarily need to follow all the detail of this slide, I would just draw your attention to all the arrows pointing up, and that just refers to all the targets and plans for expansion and growth of individual maritime sectors within Vietnam. So there's obviously clear economic drivers for this growth agenda um, in Vietnam, but it is also really clearly stated in their objectives of uh, both the um, resolution on the ocean economy, but also the legislative arrangements for the individual maritime sectors, that a clear objective is safeguarding national rights and interests in accordance with international law and particularly UNCLOS. And so, there's frequent mentions of the need to develop offshore activities, such as fishing, deep sea oil and gas, and renewable energy, in order to stake claim in contested waters uh, and to um, protect Vietnam's interests. The second relationship that I wanted to talk about is the relationship between sea power and, um, sorry, the blue economy as a way of maintaining stability and enhancing sustainable development in the region. So there's various national and regional strategies that underscore the blue economy aimed at fostering economic growth and addressing issues that might impede development. So again, this slide's quite a complex one, but really the only thing you need to take, pay attention to is that the darker the blue, the more advanced the implementation and strategy development of those countries. So Global South countries and the Asia Pacific region in particular really jumped on the bandwagon of the blue economy. And um, this has been supported by a range of international and regional development organisations, banks, bilateral donors, and non-government organisations. So they're all playing a really important role in financing and supporting the development of blue economy initiatives. So we've got things like the World Bank Group's Pro Blue Program and the Asian Development Bank's Action Plan for Healthy Oceans and Sustainable Blue Economies. So these financial investments underscore the importance of sea power in securing the ventures that are being um, advanced in the region, safeguarding the investments. And traditionally, I know sea power is um, largely seen as a tool for national defence and maintaining maritime security, but in this context and very much in the blue economy strategies we see, there's lots of consideration of non-military aspects of maritime security, so border security, piracy, overfishing, illegal, unreported and unregulated fisheries, and throwing in concerns around food and energy security, climate change, human rights illicit activities, human safety, you name it. Uh, So that obviously demands a much more cooperative responses. So finally, the blue economy as a diplomatic tool. So we also see the blue economy emerging as a soft power tool uh, and a catalyst for regional cooperation. So as I spoke about earlier, this inherent flexibility of this concept, the, the, the nebulous nature of it, Uh, and the lack of a universally agreed definition really actually does create opportunities for diverse stakeholders to come together and find common ground and shared objectives. And this has led to a whole plethora of regional agreements aimed at enhancing policy coherence, working together on shared objectives uh, and sharing resources. So for example, most recently we've had the newly adopted ASEAN Blue Economy Framework Uh, And it outlines a range of strategies and shared objectives that ASEAN countries can work on together to advance the blue economy. And so this is sometimes and often done even in the absence of national level policies. So this idea of um, the blue economy being a, a boundary crossing concept that countries and stakeholders to come together around really underscores how the blue economy can be deployed and is being deployed as a diplomatic tool. So... Um, That's the kind of global context. Uh, Now I wanted to bring it back home to our own backyard. Australia's uh, a party to a number of the agreements that I showed you on the previous slide, uh, and particularly notable is the High Level Panel for Sustainable Ocean Economy, which is a collective of 18 countries representing a really substantial proportion of the world's coastline and exclusive economic zones. These countries have identified areas of transformation and priority actions and many of these include um, focuses on maritime security and human safety. As part of the commitment to this partnership, Australia is currently developing a sustainable ocean plan and that's designed to reflect the aim of high level panel members um, to sustainably manage 100% of their maritime jurisdictions while supporting a growing blue economy. Australia's blue economy is currently valued at $118 billion per year and is responsible for creating about 462,000 jobs across sectors such as offshore energy, fisheries, shipping, marine recreation and tourism. But at the moment, the vast majority of that income and employment comes from the oil and gas sector. So there's questions around what the future of the blue economy or the ocean economy, depending on the term you like to use, um, looks like in the context of decarbonisation. So I wanted to talk a bit about this. This is very topical for me right now um, because the Illawarra region is one of a number of regions being considered for offshore wind. And this is really being looked at increasingly as a gateway towards this new decarbonised blue economy future. We know that renewable energy is going to be pivotal in us um, meeting our commitments uh, for net zero by 2050 and we also know that offshore wind presents significant potential to give us large scale, gigawatt scale energy into our grid system. So a single 100 turbine wind farm has enough capacity to basically replace a coal for a power station. So we're talking huge amounts of power. And the reliability of offshore wind, in contrast to onshore wind and solar, also makes it a practical solution for ensuring renewable energy grid security and supporting particularly industrial scale decarbonisation efforts. It's also consistent with our high level panel commitments and I believe it was an election commitment as well. So just a really quick introduction to offshore wind. Offshore wind involves really huge turbines, massive turbines, are either anchored or fixed offshore, and whether they're anchored or fixed, it depends on water depths. So basically, if it's over 90 metres deep, you need to move to floating technology. Uh, so they turn, uh, create electricity, trans- and that electricity is transferred to an offshore substation, which th- steps up the voltage, and then that high voltage undersea cables take the uh, electricity to a land-based substation, where the uh, transformer again adjusts the voltage so it then goes into the existing grid and transmission infrastructure. So, one of the reasons why there's been this quite strong and relatively recent push towards offshore wind has been in recognition of the rapidly increasing capacity of offshore wind to contribute these huge quantities of power to our national energy market coupled with technological advances in offshore wind infrastructure. So some of that floating wind technology is relatively new and the introduction of floating wind technology has opened up a lot of areas for um, potential development of offshore wind farms. So this slide basically demonstrates that first point around capacity. Um, and this is a report from the Blue Economy Cooperative Research Centre based in Tasmania and just highlights how much potential exists for wind to contribute to our national energy market. Um, Those are numbers I think speak for themselves. This next image brings together some of the multiple practical aspects that influence feasibility of offshore wind in the region. So that includes things like the placement of ports. If you can see the little ships, little black ships, um, that shows you where the major ports are in Australia and ports are really critical for offshore wind as, as you would expect because you need to kind of construct the turbines in a safe port before you tow them out to sea. It also shows uh, where heavy infrastructure is and that's really important. This is our biggest challenge in decarbonisation is how we provide enough energy for big industry. Um, So placing wind farms near where there's big industrial um, consumers is really um, important. And also the width of the continental shelf, so the little dotted line um, down the coast shows you where the edge of the continental shelf is and it really demonstrates why advances into floating technology has made such a difference because there isn't really a lot of capacity under that 90 metre mark for us to have fixed bottom turbines. It's really mostly in the Gippsland area. So... In recognition of this huge potential and the capacity that wind, offshore wind can have um, in our region, plus these advances in technology and the growing urgency of the decarbonisation agenda, Australia's foray into offshore um, wind energy has really begun apace. We had the Offshore Electricity Infrastructure Act declared in 2021 and it empowers the minister to declare specific areas called offshore electricity infrastructure zones, and is currently going through a process of consultation around us being one of them. So there's two areas currently in existence at the moment uh, that have been declared zones, and that's off the coast of Gippsland and in the Hunter. Uh, The other one's under consideration Uh, us in the Illawarra and the Southern Ocean region and potential areas have also been flagged in Bass Strait and the Indian Ocean region of Perth and Bundary. So the reason why I wanted to bore you with all this technical information around offshore wind is because it does seem to me that there are going to be some really important sea power maritime security considerations and there's two things that kind of struck me and stood out to me and firstly is around um, considerations of how defence interests can coexist with this increasingly busy ocean environment. So I note we're talking about Orcas later in the day, Port Kembla is an area that's been flagged as a potential port for that. Can these two industries coexist and how do we do that? It's really notable in that legislation that I referenced that defence and shipping are the only sectors whose ministers are required to be consulted under the Act. There is a requirement for broader consultation, but it specifically mentions defence and shipping. So this really highlights the importance of considering maritime security considerations in future blue economy plans and assets. Another clear intersection uh, between the emerging offshore wind industry and sea power will be in relation to protection of coastal infrastructure. So the scale and size of the proposals that are currently under consideration would mean that offshore wind could become one of the principal energy security assets of this country. And so we're obviously gonna need to be thinking strategically and collaboratively around how those assets are protected, and particularly given they're quite geographically dispersed. So the other sector that I just wanted to very quickly touch on is um, shipping and navigation. So the recent ANI report on protecting Australian maritime trade highlights the vulnerabilities that exist within our maritime trade network, and in particular, the concentration of the network on a small number of trading partners and the reliance on external fuel sources are noted as problematic. And so, there's, while there's a range of CPO um, implications associated with these vulnerabilities, which I'm sure um, the people in this room will be much better positioned than me to discuss. I wanted to particularly highlight how the growing blue economy can potentially play a role in addressing some of these vulnerabilities. So for example, we have a shift towards green shipping currently underway Um, with a particular focus on alternative fuel sources within the shipping industry. In November last year, the Australian government signed up to the green shipping challenge at COP27, which incorporates commitments to green shipping channels and alternative fuels. So there's capacity for other sectors within the emerging blue economy to start to support this transition and work together across multiple sectors. So for example, as I mentioned to you, the offshore wind capacity to produce huge amounts of energy may assist in um, driving the manufacturing locally of alternative fuel sources like e-methanol and green hydrogen, which have huge energy requirements. At the same time, there's obviously going to be challenges associated with the intersection between these sectors, um, especially in regard to safe navigation and the potential creation of um, choke points for shipping trade um, that, that will require some careful planning. So that's basically it from me in terms of the, the, that global to the local um, scale, but I just wanted to sum up to to make this point that the blue economy, it's a complex but highly influential force that touches on a range of uh, different considerations, including maritime security, defence development and diplomacy. And Australia is really on the cusp of some very significant changes to our blue economy landscape. And I would argue that in order to harness the potential of these changes fully, we must adopt an integrated approach that transcends these traditional siloed approaches. So managing shipping for shipping, managing offshore wind wind, and fisheries and all the other sectors. So at the present, we don't have a national oceans policy anymore. We don't have a centralized decision-making body uh, that makes decisions for oceans in a collective way. And we don't have marine spatial planning mechanisms that allow us to coordinate our transition pathway in a streamlined way. And it remains really unclear at this point if that sustainable ocean plan under development will begin to plug this gap. Sea power for me can and should play a central role here because as I hope I've demonstrated, sea power intersects with all the different sectors and lots of different ways across the emerging blue economy. And it's really um, a critical area where sea power can add to the conversation around the need to bring this together and to be thinking about it in a, a coordinated way. So I would say that maritime security agencies, the Navy and other um, relevant forces are in a really unique position to advocate for comprehensive and coordinated approach to the blue economy. And it's through this cooperation, strategic planning and sound governance, we can ensure the prosperity and security of our maritime domains in the years to come. Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing and following Saltwater Strategists wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about the Australian Naval Institute on our website, navalinstitute.com.au or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. If you're interested in general maritime affairs, why not consider joining the Australian Naval Institute to get special access to timely content and events relating to maritime affairs. A big thank you to our Goldrick Seminar sponsor, Lurson Australia, whose support is vital to bring you these timely and important discussions on maritime security and our annual Goldrick Seminar. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening.